G'day, how's it going? So you were in um, New Zealand for the Project Connect series? Yep, yep, came down, we were in Auckland for three days, Wellington today, Christchurch tomorrow, then zip back uh, to Australia on Friday night. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself and how'd you get into neuroscience? Uh, so I was a, originally a teacher, um, so decades ago back in the US, um, and when I was teaching that's when the brain stuff started to really become kind of sexy and popular. And I just remember people coming in all the time saying, brain books, brain programs, it's gonna be great. But no one really knew what was going on, so it was a wonderful buzz, zero depth. Um, so I figured the only way I was gonna sort it out was gonna be to go back and learn it myself. So I um, went back, got my degree in, in neuroscience, went through the medical schools through Boston, uh, cognitive neuroscience, moved out to Melbourne for a bit to be with my, my now wife. Uh, studied there and this whole thing now has just been how do I bridge the gap between Say the laboratory and the classroom if we know this about the brain How does that actually translate to learning and teaching because there's a lot of great? Material we know but it, until you can turn it into practical useful knowledge It's just noise. So that's my job now. Cool. Sounds awesome um, So Why is critical thinking and creativity so difficult to teach? Um, and how, well, how do you teach people this? Yeah. It's, it's the reason why the, those kind of C21 skills are so hard is because our skills are intimately tied to context. Um, unfortunately, we don't have standalone skills that once you know it, you know it everywhere. Every skill we have is locked to the information we learn to do it with. So let's just take me for instance like I, I know about the brain so I can critically think about the brain I can be creative with it I have so many facts I know how that field works I know what the definitions are I know what tools people use you go throw me into a auto body shop and say go ahead be critical thinking and creative I don't even know the baseline definitions I know an engine that's about the and I could to be honest I really couldn't even tell you what I'm pointing at if it's an engine or a brake pad, I want to know. But that's, so it's not that I don't have this skill. Oh, thank you, sir. So it's not that I don't have these skills, it's simply that they're tied to the context within which I learned them. So the reason why they're so difficult is that if you want to move your 21st century skills, you've got to start essentially back at the baseline, at the bottom, and learn your way up for them to become meaningful again. So on that, so how do you teach an old dog new tricks? So teachers, politicians, CEOs, yeah. um, to educate, I guess, their employees, the next generation. Um, what are some tips for it's the old dog? Oh man, if the good news is nothing ever changes. No matter how old you are, you still have the complete capacity to learn. Um, and you still learn the same way. Believe it or not, from about age seven till 70, we learn in the same process. So step one is just figure out what that learning process is. We've, we've gone through school, but very rarely do we come out understanding how to learn. It just kind of happens through osmosis. But believe it or not, it's a very standard process. Get your knowledge, contextualize your knowledge, adapt your knowledge, boom, that's the learning process. Um, as we get older, what tends to happen is we just don't want to do it as much. We tend to, so the way the brain works is, in order to learn new information, the brain has to be what we'll say active. It has to be live. It has to be in this moment taking in new ideas. 
Unfortunately, that takes a ton of energy. So the vast majority of the time, your brain doesn't want to be live. It wants to be in what we'll call passive mode. It wants to just look around, get a context, say, yeah, I've been here a million times, just run autopilot. So teenagers don't have that many autopilot programs, so they necessarily are constantly learning and changing and tweaking. As adults, we've got so many autopilot programs that when you hit 50, you're like, nah, been here, done it, just run what I got. So we have that extra hurdle of, you've got to get yourself into that groove to say, you know what, my prediction might not be accurate, or my prediction might not be enough, or there might be more that I'm just blocking out because I have a story already. Get over that hurdle and say, I'm willing to change my story, and now you can start learning. So your step one is you've got to get yourself into that groove to say, there's more out there. If you can't do that, it just becomes noise. Cool. Um, so, on, yeah, I guess following on from that, so if you're, I guess, an, an employee and you want to adapt by, I guess, going on training to, yeah. to um, get some new skills in your job, but then you go back to your colleagues at work and, you know, you've learned quite a bit and you want to pass that knowledge on. Yeah. Um, it may work for a month or two, but then it goes back to the the way it was. Yeah. How do you teach your colleagues to also adapt? Yeah. So that you you keep that motivation going. So I, I guess you've got kind of two aspects here. One is the motivational aspect, and one is the learning aspect. Um, in terms of the motivational aspect, most times when we come in with a new idea and we present it or we've got new information, we tend to tackle it from our angle and say, oh my gosh, you guys have got to hear this. Oh my lord, you can't believe what I've just learned. Oh, this is going to make us all so much cooler. You can't. Motivation, that's what we'll call it. <laughs> an outside motivator. I'm trying to get you excited. Not going to work. I've got to make you recognize why this is good for you. Why you would want to become intrinsically motivated. I'm excited about it already, but how does this change your life? Get personal with them. Bingo. If I can't get you emotionally hooked, not because I'm excited about it, but because you're excited about it, because in your own milieu, you now get it. That's how I get you intrinsically motivated. And now off we go. If I can't get that, most people aren't going to tack on. So what, what most people do is, because it's hard to get somebody else intrinsically motivated, um, they try and extrinsically motivate them. <laughs> We'll pay you more if you do it. We'll fire you if you don't. We add it to your position description or whatever. Bingo. And so now, now we just people will follow rules if you if they know. Well, I'm going to lose my livelihood, but that's they still won't take it up as much as if you can get them to want to. Now, how do you get them to want to? You just got to find a way to tie it directly to their life. Every person has a purpose, a vision, a dream. Find that little niche where this belongs. Squeeze it in there and watch when they start running with it. So there's your motivational angle. And that's pure emotion, by the way. So there's there's no logic in that. You're never gonna convince somebody with data. You can only convince them with emotion. Then the data just comes to layer on top of that. Now the learning is cool. Let's say you go to a conference, right? Or a training program. You learn all this great information. We've all recognized this. You're pumped, you're excited. You go back three days later, you're like, what was I so excited about? It just kind of fades away. Sad fact is we'll forget 80% of everything we learn within the next 48 hours. So every day you just drop about 80% of info. So you can assume excited while you're at the conference, sure, but most of that's gonna go away unless you start doing something with it. So the first, so now here's where the learning comes in. If you ever want to bring new information ideas in and make them usable, 
you need to go through the process. And step one is you have to form what are called semantic memories for the new information you just learned. So anytime you make a new memory for a new idea or fact, that information is what we'll call an episodic memory. It's tied to where you learned it. So if you ever want to think about what you learned at the conference, you have to mentally transport yourself back to the conference and say, oh yeah, that's what I learned. That's not enough. What you have to do now is over the next week, couple of weeks, is you have to build more episodic memories using that same information. So this is where you gotta come back and teach your colleagues. Uh, a couple days later, you've gotta um, reread about it. A couple days after that, you've gotta have a debate about it. Maybe you gotta quiz yourself about it. You've gotta keep building episodic memories. Eventually what happens is you pull out a semantic fact from all those episodic memories, and now that information is no longer tied to any time and place, it's dissociable and it stands completely alone. Now you're ready to start applying it in your workplace. Most people jump right from the first time they hear it to how do I apply it. You can't until you learn it X amount of times. And this is where the repetition and learning comes in. You're not ready to start running yet. Just keep playing with it. Just keep tweaking it. Just keep talking about it. Just keep debating about it. Once you make enough, you build your semantic fact. Now you start to say, how can I use my critical thinking with it? How can I use my creativity on this fact? So you've got your motivational angle and then your learning angle. You can't run with it. You've got to go through the walk, walk the process, and that's how it's going to start to take real hold in people's lives past that. So I guess passion comes into it too. You, you need colleagues that are high performing, performing uh, or are passionate about their their role. Yeah. Or and else it's or else it goes in, and then you got to say, okay, so most people at this point say. I've got to go find the passion people. Any human being can become passionate about anything, so long as they have three things. A voice, a saying, and an impact. So any job I'm in, let's say I'm going to go be a chef right here tomorrow. Cool. First, I need a voice. I need to be able to feel as though if I see something, have an idea, get a new, that I can say it. That there's some sort of system by which, hey, I noticed we do it this way. What if we try this? Or, oh, I just read this book. Now I need to have a say, which means I need to have agency okay, you've noticed a problem, how do you think we should address it? You've got a new idea, how do you think we move it? You run the team to make this. And then I have to have an impact. So cool, you're gonna give me the agency to go play with my new ideas? Let's say they work really well, now I need that to be adopted around me. I need to see that the world, the job, the restaurant changes as I develop as a human being. When I come up with ideas, it goes there too. You give a human being those three things, they'll be passionate about anything. You take any of those three things away, watch as they just start to walk out. Like, my, the example I use is, so let's just take academia, right? Universities. Most of us who work in universities, that was our dream, was to get there and do that. Problem with universities is, man, <laughs> the, Maybe you can have a voice, maybe you absolutely have a say. I mean, we're all just completely agentic, do what you feel, so long as you get your funding, go to town. But there's zero impact. So I work in an ed school now in Melbourne, where you've got some of the best minds in the world developing some of the most incredible educational tools. Like one of the guys I work with has completely reinvented the rubric, the way we assess kind of writing. People around the world are clamoring to work with him to get this rubric out. The university itself hadn't even touched it. We're still using things that were developed 30 years ago. So none of us have an impact on our immediate surroundings. So what are we doing at university? We're leaving in droves 
to go work with the people who we're actually impacting. So I give me a voice, give me a say, but if that doesn't then change the way you behave when I do my learning and growth, watch as I just walk out the door and find someone that is going to care. Um, have some coffee while we're there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, why are stories important? Can you explain the power of the story to kind of drive perception and what it means with regards to attracting team members or an audience? Yeah. Um, so believe it or not, so go back to that idea we were talking about earlier about how we kind of live in prediction mode. That's not a flippant process. When you're in your prediction mode, and we're, we're there 90 to 95% of the day, that prediction, that story, that sense of, I understand how the world should work, that literally drives your perceptions of that scenario, that environment. So I'm not lying when I say we all taste, smell, see, hear a different world based on our different stories. So now you start to say, if our story, so this is kind of angle one, drives perception, then step one has to be get your story right because that story will dictate how people see you, how people smell, <laughs> that's a weird analogy, but taste, touch, smell, feel you. Those stories drive perceptions, not interpretations, perceptions. So your kind of top level is story is everything. Story is the thing that runs our predictions. Predictions are where we live. We don't live in reality, we live in our predictions. Get the story right, get the prediction right, you can drive the world around you. Now, on a more kind of personal level, let's take story as narrative. Narratives kind of have this cause, so in anything, the more common sense of term or definition of the word story, in order for anything to be considered a story, a narrative, it only needs two ingredients, a cause and effect chain and an emotional valence. So events have to happen in a sequence precipitated by the event that happened before it and Characters, people, things have to change the way they feel as that cause and effect happens. Believe it or not, that pattern is the natural pattern of the way the brain makes sense of the world. With just totally nonsense input, the brain's natural instinct is to build a cause and effect chain and an emotional balance around it. So I'm not kidding when I say the brain thinks in narrative. So the more if you're trying to influence, inspire, teach, learn, the more you can find the narrative, the easier it becomes. You're writing the natural patterns of the brain. So if I, I can teach you a fact 10 times, and it may or may not stick, I can tell you a story once, and I guarantee you it'll stick, so long as I embed that fact within that story. Because I'm not fighting any battles, I don't have any hurdles, I'm just, that's your natural pattern, I'm just putting my train right on the tracks you already got, and off we go. And the third benefit then from that narrative is not only is it helping people learn, when I teach, learn, influence in a narrative format, and we only see this happen with narratives, what starts to happen is the people I'm working with, we start to do what's called neural synchronization. If I'm telling you a story and you're listening, and I'm mapping your brain while you're listening, very soon after we begin, your brain starts to fire in a very similar pattern to mine. It's not like close, like we're in sync now, 90%. So in this moment, you're not just learning with me, you're learning like me. We're now totally together. And once you get into that sync spot, all of a sudden you start to get emotional connection, you start to get a sense of belonging, you start to build a common story, and there's where you start to see groups just completely coalescing because they become each other. It's really good. 
So, so why aren't we seeing this in the education system? Is it, it's been the same for yeah. many years. Uh, you've said in the past that it's like the biggest influencer in the world, which naturally it should be. Yeah. Um, how do you see the education system uh, in a 10, 20 years time? Will, mm-hmm. it, will, it, will it change? No, believe it or not, I'm, I'm, somebody asked a couple uh, months ago, what's your dangerous idea in education? And the dangerous idea, and I stand by it, is by and large, it's not broken. It's the, the common narrative is, oh, education's broken, it needs to be fixed. No, we're 85% there. The vast majority of stuff we do is great. And if you go into and actually work with teachers, the common assumption of what people are doing in schools grows with someone repeating rote learning. The vast majority of teachers don't do that. Once the classroom door closes, they might say that's what they do. Once the classroom door closes, they're doing real work with their students. So for the most part, we're good. In terms of the narrative angle, what we're seeing is absolutely more teachers are well so let's go back to this idea of education isn't broken now we have kind of what we get to do is kind of talk about that top 15 percent where we get to say okay how can we make it better and a lot of teachers are bringing narrative in they're finding the stories behind the facts which naturally lends itself easier to some topics of more so than others arts and humanities easy as some people would say math might be harder but you're finding a lot of math teachers saying oh i can find the historical Pythagorean theorem didn't exist one day, it did the next. There's your story, let's dive in. And the real joy then becomes, okay, so how do we take the full curriculum, because we still have things that we need to teach people. You'll never strip away content. It, it, strip away content from education at your own peril. <laughs> oh man, I don't know how many examples I can show you of schools and districts that went off grid and like, we're just gonna teach skills. And I always say, I'll see you in five years when the kids aren't learning. To a, to a school, five years later, they'll say, what's going on? You can't just teach skills. Like we learned earlier, skills are context dependent. Strip the context, there is no skill to learn. So now the fun question is, how do we narratize the entire curriculum? If I know when we're teaching math and science and social studies, some of the cooler schools are all coming together and they're doing what we'll call horizontal alignment, where all the teachers of say grade eight say, okay, what's our common narrative? What's one big story we can use to weave all of our things together? So in each class, you're having your own narrative school. But at the end of each day, at the end of each week, you spend an hour or two coming out and saying, let's now attach everything we learned to this larger narrative, which is the same across all classes. And then you get these kind of big group projects where now you're combining what you've learned in one class with another and drawing on all these different. And that kind of integration through narrative is, is phenomenal. When, it, when done right, it, it's incredible. And I think a lot of schools are doing it. So. Cool. Um, so, yeah, many people believe that um, technology, it, it helps society and you know, increases. Yeah. It's, it's more efficient, easier access to information. But it's also dumbing down society because um, your, your, your reliance on tech. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Um, Jimmy Cricket. I guess this is, and in, in here's where half of your listeners, I'm sure, will turn it off. Um, I'm a card-carrying Luddite. Um, I'm not, not a technophile in the least. And not because I don't see its benefit in some realms of life, it's that I've seen it, <laughs> because it's been so helpful in some, people have now tried to apply it everywhere, and it just does not belong in some places. One place where tech is just 
failing, I, I don't even think it's a question, has failed miserably, is education. <laughs> Anything, there's a good rule of thumb we use in university. If you can do it live, do it live. There's something very wonky about computers that as soon as you try and do the same thing on a computer, it just learning tanks. And we, we start to think it's because the, the story that's inherent in a computer. This is gonna be a weird analogy, but imagine you have an alcoholic and you give him a big bucket of beer and you say, okay, we're gonna use this beer to test the density of different objects. Now sure, a barrel of beer could be used to test density, but to an alcoholic, there's a massive story already embedded in that beer that's driving how they're interpreting it, what they're thinking about, what they're doing, and now to use beer for the purpose of learning physics, you're already having to overcome this massive hurdle of, uh-oh, I need to waste cognitive resources trying to tamp down my normal responses, go in your direction. Now, someone who doesn't drink, give them a barrel of beer, say test density, fine, they'll do it just fine. Now bring it back, computers. Most people, most kids, students, human beings, spend 80 to 90% of their time on technology not using it for learning, not using it for growth, not using it for understanding. They use it for entertainment, they use it for connection, they use it for social media, they use it for blah blah blah. <laughs> so now sit a kid down and say, here's a computer, we're gonna learn math on it. It's not that the computer can't be used to learn math, it's that now you have to overcome this massive story kids already have with a computer. And what you find is teachers, and they'll, they will tell you this left and right if you ask them, they spend most of their time with kids on computers just telling them to stay back on task, don't open that other file, shut down that, that Twitter, stay focused, stay focused, stay focused. And they're wondering why kids aren't learning on computers. It's not because the computer is bad, it's because we already have a way we understand to use them. And it's not to learn math. So if you want to teach me math, by doing it on a computer, you've already made it harder for me, you've made it harder for you, and you've just put up this massive barrier. Whereas if we just used other tools that don't already carry this story, pen and paper, blocks, whatever the heck it's gonna be, cool. I don't have anything to overcome, I can go right into the learning. So unfortunately, tech, uh, for as good as it is connectivity-wise, it's done very little for learning. In fact, the vast majority of evidence shows that it hinders learning purely because kids start multi, they don't know what to do on it when it comes to learning. Um, and beyond that, I just think the over-reliance on the way it reforms memory. So go back, so we're talking about how skills are reliant on contexts, on knowledge, on information. Inherent in this relationship is that context and information has to be embedded within you. You have to have a semantic memory for it. Problem. When I have a computer, I don't embed memories. What I do is I offload my memories. I put them on my computer. When you do that, kids learn something. They still form memories. What they do is they form memories for the location of information. I know where to look it up. Knowing where to look something up is a memory, but it ain't the kind of memory I can apply creativity, collaboration, critical thinking to. So this idea that because Google's around, I don't need to know things, well, congratulations, I'll see you when the rest of the world is just zooming by and you're just relying on Google. That argument carries zero water. When we grew up, we didn't have Google, but we did have Encyclopedia Britannica. That didn't eliminate the need for us to learn. We had a school library, all the facts were there. That didn't eliminate the need for us to memorize information. So just because Google's a little faster doesn't change the learning process. You offload your memory, watch when you don't do anything with it. You need to have it internalized. And so the reliance of tech, this belief that I can just offload memory and then do 
deeper things with my life. It's just not how this ball game works. So that doesn't really bode well for the future mm. generation. Um, it, it, yay and nay. Um, I think what's going to happen is, <laughs> I think we're seeing it now, is, is we've just got to not box it out, but you just got to put the tool in the right spot. You bring out your hammer when it's time to hit a nail. You bring out your screwdriver when it's time to screw a screw. We're starting to box the computer into cool. You bring out your computer when it's time to watch Netflix, when it's time to relax, when it's time to, when you're on the toilet and you're checking your emails. That's when you bring out the computer. You put it away in these other realms. When it comes time to collaborate, put the computer away. When it comes time to learn, put the computer away. When it comes time to read, sorry, reading is bad online, put the computer away, pull out the book. Use the best tool suited for your purpose. And I think that's where we're gonna get to now. So I think we're, we're, we're finding its box and we're eventually gonna put it there and go back to what works, what doesn't. Um, the worst thing we could do at this point, some schools are doing it, is try and adapt education to the tool. Try and redefine what teaching and learning means because that's the way computers need it to be. Don't ever let the tool dictate your function. If the tool doesn't match your function, change the tool, not your function. And that's, so that's the scary thing. The few schools that are like, well, we're gonna re, redefine memory for a computer. Why? Why would you ever do that? The computer ain't real. It's not a thing you need to appease. It's not a god. If you don't like it, don't adapt to it. Use it for what it's good for, ditch it when it's not. Cool. Um, on the yeah, we'll, we'll stop it there. Um, thanks, thanks for your time this morning. Perfect. No, uh, no enjoy worries. the rest of your time in New Zealand. Yay! Thank uh, you so much.